thanks very much for coming. Uh, I know it's been a long reinvent. Uh, I hope your head is not exploding too much. Uh, if it is, well, I hope at least we're not going to explode it uh, even more. Did you have a good reinvent so far? It's good? All right. I'm sure the guys who say no wouldn't say like, too much like this, so thanks. Anyway. So today we're going to talk a little bit about chaos engineering. Uh, and just before we start, a uh, show of hands, who does currently chaos engineering at home? Only chaos. Uh, we all do chaos at home. How many of you uh, are kind of find it or are interested but find it very hard to start? Right, so almost the same people. It's quite funny. And how many of you kind of trying to plan uh, or to get into it or are interested? Uh, the other ones is going to be after this session, maybe or not. All right, cool. All right, so uh, this, uh, this session is going to be co-presented with Olga Ho, uh, who is leading the resiliency team at Prime Video. And she's going to talk about the uh, journey of Prime, and I'm going to talk about uh, chaos engineering in a more holistic way. It's basically, I've been working uh, for sometimes uh, almost 12 years on AWS, uh, and I've been doing chaos for almost six years now. And I work with quite a few customers uh, lately and trying to help them develop chaos, uh, chaos practices. So some of these, uh, these learnings are going to be in this deck. And uh, so I want to share that with you. So I want to ask you a question. How many of you uh, are firefighters in the room? Ah, there's a few of them. That's really cool. So thank you very much, actually, for uh, doing that. Uh, there's something very peculiar with uh, firefighters is they spend an enormous amount of time training. Actually, some studies uh, uh, said that professional firefighters uh, have to train several thousands of hours before uh, going to production, uh, uh, going really kill the fire, uh, uh, a real fire. Do you know why? Right? It's to build an intuition, actually. Uh, they want uh, that fighting fire becomes very, very natural. And if it's not natural, basically the fire will be faster than you and you'll probably get killed. Uh, so they want to develop this intuition. It's actually the same intuition that we have when we walk. Right? If you would have to think, uh, well, how do I balance myself when I walk? It's too late, I'm falling. Well, it's very similar with firefighters. And there's something interesting here because in early 2000, we had one uh, person called Jesse Robbins that was hired, and he was a volunteer firefighter. And he came uh, to lead some of the operation teams at Amazon, the retail side, and especially trying to make the retail side more resilient to outages. It was the time when Amazon started to grow ridiculously, uh, and well, you know, failure happened all the time. Uh, and, you know, at the more you scale, the more you have a possibility to have failures. So they started to look at new ways trying to prevent failures. And Jesse Robbins was hired, and he brought the idea of firefighters and trying to build an intuition and actually trying to develop that capability to train before going to production and fight fire in production. I'm sure many of you have had outages in production, right? Uh, how many have been trained by outages in production? 
right? It's, it's not really the right place to train yourself uh, because if you, uh, if you go in, in production and you have an outage, humans, or at least I have, very often felt very, very stupid. I lose 50% of my ability to do anything. There's under pressure, you start sweating. Uh, you do really, really stupid stuff. I deleted production database uh, while trying to fight a mid-size mid outage. And I can tell you the result was a dramatic outage. Uh, and that's simply because I was not trained, right? Uh, I was really panicking and didn't know really what to do. Like, and in the meantime, I got disturbed. We didn't have a war room, so someone came and yelled at me while we had a small outage. I go back to my console, and I get in the long, wrong terminal, and I do a drop table, and then I press enter. And the moment when you press enter and you hear this voice in your head, at this moment, he knew it was wrong. <laughs> you know, just you already hit it, and then that's down. Well, that's simply because I was not trained enough, right? And so he brought this idea at Amazon and wanted to practice outages. So what he would do, he started game days in 2004, and what he would do, he would randomly go into a data center and start unplugging servers or killing processes so that his team could practice recovering from failures, or at least build system that would be resilient to failure. We call that uh, partial failure modes, right? So that kind of uh, uh, grew within Amazon. Those massive game days, as we grew, kind of switched into more mid-sized type of game days. But actually, Prime Video, and we'll hear the story, nowadays do game days in production uh, several times uh, a month or even every week. So we'll hear this story from Olga. So game days were kind of uh, nicely, actually Jesse Robbins had probably the best title in the world, like Master of Disaster. I'm not sure how it goes on, on LinkedIn if you try to be hired later on, but at least it's pretty cool. Then in, 2000, uh, in the early 2010, uh, 11, uh, Netflix kind of uh, did the whole move to AWS. Right? So they migrated the entire infrastructure uh, to AWS, and they started to adopt microservices architecture. And it has, at that time, AWS was not you know, what it is today. Uh, we've trained a lot, we've uh, improved a lot, but at the beginning of the cloud, you know, there was maybe less managed services, people had to do uh, more things, so it was also more prone to failures. And they wanted their system to be really resilient, right? so they started to build uh, monkeys, like a chaos monkeys, that would kill randomly instances in production to make sure their uh, software was always stateless, for example, that it was always, always very well architected across multiple ASIs and stuff like this. They even went into creating a, a Kong monkey that was killing full, uh, full region uh, services, and then they would practice flip from one region to another, which they still do today. So, we are here, right? Then in 2015, uh, they formulated that uh, field that is now called uh, chaos engineering. And if you want to read about the principle of chaos, there's a, a very nice website about it. What is very important to realize is chaos is not just, hey, let's go and randomly kill stuff in production. Don't go Monday and say, hey, well, I heard the talk at reInvent, uh, chaos engineering is great, let's unplug the database. 
It's not really like that. Uh, actually, we do really chaos engineering to uh, avoid having to train for failures while it's happening in production. It's a way to gain, build confidence for your team into our application, uh, into our tools, and in our culture uh, to withstand turbulent condition. Uh, when you have an outage, it doesn't only affect application, it affects the culture, it affects the processes, the tools. So chaos engineering is a very good way to test all that before problems happen in production. However, we don't really start necessarily chaos engineering just like this. Uh, there is some prerequisites. Uh, you can start chaos engineering very early on, but if you want to really take it to the next level and go as close as possible to production, there is some prerequisite, and, and especially in terms of resiliency. This is a list of some of the things I've seen most uh, uh, happening in production, some cause of outages. Just a quick hand here. How many of you have been victim of uh, expirations of certificates, outages? Yeah, right? And this is not something we can really engineer very difficult engineering problem, it's really checking a date on the certificate. And yet, I've had at least three of those, uh, so it's very common. So we need to have processes and we need to have some automation that you know, helps uh, us doing this. On my side, I think the application side, having especially timeouts defined, you know, frameworks very often have default timeouts. Uh, Python developers in the room? A few of them, uh, this, yeah. uh, Python developers, the request library to do HTTP calls, the default timeout, any idea? Infinite. So this is by default, it's not defined, so it really can hold the connection. It's not the only one, Python is not the only one, actually C Sharp is the same. Uh, the GDBC driver for uh, SQL, same. Uh, these collections of, of libraries to do HTTP calls that actually have very, very long defaults. If it's not infinite, it's 30 minutes or things like this. And you know, in the distributed system and in application, 30 minutes even is really, really infinite. So do you have processes to look at all the timeouts that we use in our libraries when we do NPM install? or when we do PIP requirement install, do we look at all those libraries and say, oh, all the timeouts are not the default one, we assign them, we know what they are. How many of you do this? Review? Yeah. Sorry, uh, no one? Right. So this is also a problem, right? Because one day there's gonna be a failure and the timeout is gonna be infinite and then you're gonna do a post-mortem and say, oh, maybe we should define timeouts. And chaos engineering is gonna, find this pretty, pretty early on, especially if you do a latency-based injection problem. Another one, retries with back off, right? Uh, if, you are, if you experience an issue and you want to do uh, a retry, very often system would do immediate retries, like, dad, are we there yet? 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 Uh, you've heard that, right? You don't want to do this. Like kids would drive you crazy. It's the same with a uh, software system. If components keep on asking and retries, if there's a failure, you create what we call retry storms. Your network gets totally full of retry packets, and that creates 
very often cascading failures. Uh, so what you want to do is implement back off. So you ask a request. If you don't get the answer, you back off two seconds, four, eight, 16. All right. And especially you need to have a max retries. So these are kind of few things that very often outages are uh, happening. Monitoring as well, of course, if you want to do chaos engineering, you need to monitor and need to what's happening. Right. So even though you can start very early on, you know, in your laptop, do Docker stop or you know, kill processes, eventually you need to have a baseline to build this confidence uh, uh, in your application to say, all right, now I believe my application is solid. Let's test it, right? And this is actually what chaos engineering is. You have to have this confidence, this confidence that your application has a very strong baseline in re re resiliency. If you want to read about this, we actually launched today during the keynote, I couldn't add the slides, but we launched uh, the builders, uh, the builders uh, library, which is a collection of papers from all our principles at Amazon, how we do things, how we build resilient system. And it's also, uh, you can read some of that into the well-architected papers. Uh, I'm not gonna go into details here because we only have uh, 60 minutes. So we now have a, a quite resilient application. Our team is, re is confident. We can start chaos engineering, right? So what is it? Well, it's actually a cycle. Uh, it starts with understanding the steady state on an application, right? Then we move into the hypothesis phases where it's basically a scientific experiment. Uh, we have an ID, we verify it, or we execute an experiment and then we verify it. And then eventually we want to have the improve cycle, right? Because uh, if you find something, you really want to improve it. So let's deep dive a little bit in this phase. What's the steady state? The most common problem I see with steady state is people focus on operational metrics like CPU, memory, concurrent connections, or things like this. It's very important to attach this to a business metric. I'll give you an idea. Amazon.com, a very good metric is the number of orders, right? Because it's, if there is a failure in kind of a checkout, it's a bad user experience. You've, you know, you made the search, it takes some time, and the moment where you want to check out, it fails. That's a bad user experience. Uh, so for us, steady state here is very good because it's a notion that, hey, the backend is broken, but it's also a bad user experience. This is a good steady state. And a system doesn't have to have only one steady state. It can have several uh, of those. We're going to hear some of them uh, from uh, Olga for Prime Video. And so focus on that. Sometimes it's actually very hard to understand, uh, to understand what's the steady state of your application. But take the team and, and spend some time trying to look at it. Huh? But if you combine customer experience with operational metrics, that's usually what, uh, what gives you the best results. Once you have your steady states, and actually it's very important to know the steady state because when you make a chaos experiment, uh, you want to verify that it doesn't break the steady state, right? So you don't want to make a chaos experiment that change or breaks everything on your steady state. So that's why it's very important. After that, you go into the hypothesis cycle. And this is one of my favorite uh, one because what I always suggest to customers uh, is take the entire team 
that develops the application. Uh, not only the engineers or the backend developers, which is often the case when people are starting with chaos engineering, take the entire team, everyone that is involved uh, in designing this application, from the UI designer uh, to the backend, uh, the architect, the uh, program managers, everyone. And then you make an hypothesis. You say, for example, what if? Right? So what happens if, uh, for example, take the database down? What happens if I inject latency in the network? Uh, take one hypothesis and start somewhere there. And then what you need to do here is very important. Ask people to write on the paper. Right? What? Ask them to write on the paper what they think is gonna happen with the hypothesis. So for example, I'm a backend engineer. Someone asked me what happens if the database goes down. As a backend engineer, I would probably write something like, well, my backend uh, will detect that there's a failure uh, in the backend through a timeout. The timeout should happen after 30 seconds. Uh, after 30 seconds, the circuit breaker uh, will notice there's a database. Uh, the database should flip to read-only mode. After a minute, I have to reboot maybe to update the, uh, uh, the dom domain name of my uh, database and you know, all these kind of scenarios. Try to get the times and what people think, how long it's gonna get. Why do we do it on paper? It's because if you do it without paper and people talk in a room, it creates a convergence. If you take people in the room and say, oh, what happens if database, I'm gonna start saying something, the other one is gonna say, oh yes, this, this, and you create convergence. And there's no way to really find if there's a problem. If you write on paper, it's divergence. Everyone has different ideas. Right? And then you can stop here and you say, why is everyone having so different ideas of what's happening in production? Uh, that's usually a problem in specifications documentation, so it's a very good way to say, whoa, whoa, all right, let's recalibrate and let's roll back and you know, fix our specification, maybe fix some part of the software. And this is a very interesting phase. Actually, I also always uh, tell customers that in the specification phase, this is a very good way to do it, uh, to improve specification, not necessarily when you do chaos engineering. So make it everyone's problem, right? And then what is, uh, what is also important, and which is often hard for people to start with chaos engineering, is which hypothesis I'm gonna make. Well, if you're on AWS, I would say, and you probably are using some sort of auto-scaling group, I would say something like, hey, test my auto-scaling group. Right? You have an application across multiple AZs, you do CPU injection on the instances behind the load balancer, and see actually if the auto-scaling group is reacting the exact way you were thinking. That's one thing that you can start with. Or look at the history of your outages. What is the most common sort of outage that you get? If it's deployment, if you get outages often with deployment, a very good way to do is maybe inject a failure in the deployment pipeline. Say, okay, I'm gonna deploy something and that should fail the health check. And then you can verify you have the rollback and all this kind of stuff. And this is, Quite simple, just look at your history. Another one, the third one, in my opinion, so it's pretty nice, you look at your APIs and the critical services for each of your APIs, and you say, okay, I'm gonna focus on this API, let's look at the critical services, and you start with the last one, and you go up, boom, boom, boom. Right. 
But don't stop there. Then make combination of experiments. Uh, if you just do a simple experiment like a CPU injection, or you know that's not enough. Usually you want to do a CPU injection, and at the same moment you might do a latency injection. And this is where you see problem can really surface. Right? Because outages never happen because of one problem. They happen because of a collection of small things that create a much bigger uh, outage, uh, a scenario. So focus on these kind of things. What kind of scenarios do you see? And try to reproduce this. And then it's running the experiment. And usually, in chaos engineering, we run experiments by doing failure injection. Right? And there's plenty of ways you can do failure injection. The most common ones on the application level. Uh, so you might throw in errors. I'm sure you test sometimes your application like this. You generate exception or error and see if you catch them. Do you want to fail fast or do you want to you know, do a very complicated try and catch and then hide the errors? Fail fast is often a very good solution in that case, uh, especially if you want to have a recovery-oriented architecture. On the host level, uh, I've talked about it, might be a CPU injection, so you burn the CPU or you remove some part of the memory, you remove the disk space. How many of you have had outages because the logs have filled up the space? Yeah, that's a common one, right? This is a very good, actually, sort of outage to start with or sort of experiment. Just write a big file on the disk of the instance and see what happens. If you don't have space on the instance, you can't open sockets, you can't do anything, right? So it's usually a very good way to see if you can deal with this kind of stuff. And then you can go all the way down to maybe a bit bigger AZ attack. You know, you remove a subnet, you deny all traffic in the subnet, or then a regional attack, you remove all the routing to that uh, to that region, uh, especially if you use the ENS or something like this. Now you might see a people attack, so let me explain what a people attack. I don't just go around and break somebody's neck. Uh, don't do this. A people attack, what I love to do is go into the teams and identify, uh, you know, the 10x developers, uh, the guys that, or the, the women that are really, really good at doing extremely uh, complicated task while drinking a coffee, speaking to other people. They are the gurus, right? They know everything, they fix everything. No, they are gods. And we all have them in our teams. How many of you have kind of these kind of gods in your team, right? What happens if they get crushed by a boss, right? Uh, take the laptop. You arrive in the morning, and I've done that like a few weeks ago. I went in the company. They had this guard. I took the laptop, and I said, oh, you go home. Six hours we had to bring back that person in urgency uh, because no one knew how it was going to fix the problem, or they didn't have access to MFA, or they didn't have the right code, the right credentials. These kind of things is actually quite scary if you look at your teams, how little information sometimes is shared, right? So do these kind of things as well. It's not necessarily on the software attack, you know, culture attack, or people attack. It's something that is very interesting. So I highly recommend you to look at this. What is very important here as well is once you plan an experiment, have an idea of how you might want to stop the experiment or roll back. Uh, 
it can go wrong. And this is why we capture the steady state. You monitor the steady state, you do your chaos experiment, and all of a sudden the steady state goes wild. And you're like, oh, we need to stop. Something is wrong. If you don't have a stop button or a way to roll back and you didn't think about it, well, there you have an outage in production that you just created. And I'm telling you, it's not going to be good for your team or for uh, the chaos engineering uh, publicity internally. Right? So think about it while you design your experiment. Have a way to roll back, practice it maybe, uh, test it before uh, in, in kind of a test environment and, and things like this. And keep in mind that sometimes chaos experiment might corrupt or uh, uh, data or store incorrect data. So have a way maybe to delete it, uh, you know, attach uh, data, uh, attach a tag with some data so that you know that this was synthetic data or uh, things that you don't want to keep in production. Sometimes it's actually quite hard, but if you think about it, at least you make it easier for you. And then you go into the phase of verifying actually what uh, you wanted to do. And this is very, very, very important. Uh, time to detect. How many of you have had outages that you didn't get an alarm for? Yeah, it's very, very common. One of the biggest outages I've had, we got alerted from Twitter. Yes, you don't want to be alerted from Twitter. Uh, and especially you don't want your C CTO to tell you, Twitter tells us uh, that your system is down. What's happening, right? Um, practice this kind of chaos engineering where you don't tell everyone in the organization you're going to practice maybe a, uh, an experiment today. You say, eh, this week we might do it, or if, we, if you say today, stay vague, so that actually people can really check the time to detect right, and verify that the escalation pass might work. Uh, I've had people leave teams, and the escalation pass didn't get updated and didn't get escalated. Yeah. Uh, it happens, so verify everything. Every time you do something, try to verify your response time, right? Your time to detect an, uh, an outage is super, super important. And, though, and then go all the way to time to recovery uh, with everything in between. How long did it take for you to notify the public? Do you know what you're gonna say? Do you have already messaging in place? Or do you need to ask your PR to write something while you have an outage? You need to communicate, so have this in place. Right? Uh, if you practice it, it's not only engineering. Very often when you have outages, it's a lot related to communication. Right? Communication internally and external communication. All right. So try to keep in mind that you want to get as much data as possible. Why you want to have that is because then you need to go into a post-mortem. Right? This is where you capture what has happened. Uh, you make a summary of the incident. You put all the data that you've uh, collected into this postmortem. You try to get a timeline of what happened. Uh, try to, and this is where people always complain when I'm saying this, try to deep dive into the cause of an outage. Now, in brackets, there's never one cause. There's no root cause. We all know that. It's a collection of causes, right? We always look at Amazon at three different points. Processes, tools, and culture, all right? Deep dive in this one, because you'll have a lot of different points, things to improve, things to think about, uh, 
try to get as many graphs as possible. Humans are really, really reactive to graphs, right? so it adds a lot of, of value in a postmortem. By the way, we call the deep dive the five whys. It's not literal. Some COEs have literally 40 or 50 whys right, in different parts of, uh, of, uh, of the things. Right? So it's just a process that we call five whys because it was used back in the days, very old, when we started basically doing that process, and it comes from Toyota. Uh, we just haven't changed the name. Right? But the way we do it is still very different than just the five whys. Especially we have a culture that is non-blaming. So we never ever stop at the operational problem. We don't say, oh, it was an operator making a mistake. This is actually a very good point. If an operator makes a mistake, what do you do? Do you stay there? Why was he able to make a mistake? Why didn't we have these guardrails in place? Or why wasn't it worn? You know, when I deleted the database, I could have been fired. Huh? Uh, I was not, I was, I was actually asked the question, how come you were able to run that in a production system? And this is a very good question, right? So we went into creating all sorts of tools and processes. It's not removing uh, freedom to me, it's actually trying to avoid me making mistakes. I was still able to do all that stuff, but I had guardrails. If I write drop DB, then I had an MFA protection. Right? I had to verify, or if I had the terminal in production and one in test, different colors. Right? Red for production, blue for test environment, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's trying to create safety uh, in your operation. It's not removing the capability or the freedom of your developer, but create a safety environment for them. Try to capture the blast radius of what is happening, right? the number of people that are being uh, that are being affected by the outage, the potential uh, uh, outages, and try to find ways to limit that as much as possible. Right? A few things to remember, and I already talked about this, never blame people for their mistakes. And then there's never one cause for outage. Right? And then you go into improve, and here I don't have a, sil a silver bullet. What I would say is, for us to improve, we always go through what we call the weekly operation meetings. And these are weekly uh, meetings that happen with all our operation team from all the service teams. We go through the postmortems that we've had, identify the actions, follow up on the action, try to share some of the best practice we've had. If there's best practice, we love to automate that or create a tool so that the automation has the best practices embedded in it, we don't need to repeat it. These are kind of things that uh, actually improve operational excellence in the long term. Uh, if you rely on people, uh, goodwill, you're doing wrong, because people already have good intentions. When you hire people, the engineers, they want to do good. Mechanisms are the things that actually will help. Right? And this is very important. Uh, you, can, uh, you can look something called the undone cord, which is a very good mechanism as well uh, for everyone in an organization to be able to you know, stop processes or stop things that go wrong. And this fits very nicely in that, uh, in that process. There are some challenges. Uh, in my opinion, most of the challenges are actually cultural, and I'll talk a little bit uh, about it. But it's also the chaos engineering doesn't solve all your problems. 
right? It will identify some. Uh, but chaos engineering as a very good thing is that it changed, start to change the culture of companies in the long term because people that do chaos engineering start to feel a lot more humble. Uh, humility increases because, well, it's gonna, it's gonna uh, uh, give you a lot of different failures and then you're gonna realize that maybe some decisions that you've made or other people in your team have made are not you know, as strong as what you had thought initially. Uh, so culturally, this is something that, uh, in my opinion, is a challenge, but it's actually its greatest strength as well. So look, look into uh, chaos engineering, in my opinion, for all this goodness, technical goodness, processes, culture, and tools. All right. And on that note, I want to invite Olga to tell us around the journey uh, about Prime Video uh, from chaos to resilience. Thank you. Thank you, Adrian. My name is Olga Hall and I run Resilience Engineering team on Prime Video. It's an honor to be here and share the story of my team with you. About six years ago, for those of you who raised your hands and said, I'm just starting to think about chaos resilience, chaos and resilience on my side, I was in the same shoes. I was thinking, where do I start? How do I structure it? How to make it work? What the progress looks like? So everything that I will be talking about is the insight and my and my team lessons from that journey, so happy to share. So let me set the context. And it's important for me to highlight that under the hood in Prime Videos, there's actually three different businesses. If you're a Prime subscriber, you have access to Amazon original content, or you can catch live content, such as maybe music, or as of two days ago, we launched uh, English Premier League, for example, for customers in UK, so that's live sports. If you want to watch and rent a movie, if you're in the mood for that, so you can do that, rent or buy. And the third business is you can also watch your favorite channel. It's important to highlight it because this complexity of business rules and this complexity of different services coming together comes in the picture when we talk about chaos and resilience. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about our journey. Where we started, we started with the game days and preparation for Q4. All Amazonians, and many of you know that when there is comes and there is holidays, there is a lot of holiday shopping, Black Friday, Sunday, Monday, right? Preparing for Q4 is super important um, to all of the Amazonians. Okay, great, we started there. And what we quickly realized is that it's not enough. As Prime Video moved from one country to 242 territories that we're on right now, um, we were looking at the content going viral and having super popularity in different countries and in different zones, and we realized that we need to be totally in evergreen state. Our services need to be always ready uh, for those pleasant surprises. Okay, so what did we do? At that point, I've added an engineering team that engineering team very uh, soon created a suite of products that I will be sharing with you as an example um, of how to solve chaos and resilience. And right now we are at the point where a lot of the technologies that we have is running auto automatically behind the scene and we are testing in production. Okay, here we go. Um, when I got asked a question, so what's after? And I think about this as well. 
all right, so you have the technology, you run this game days in automatic fashion. So what comes after that? What I'm finding is that there is inevitably uh, communities that shape up within your organization and within also larger industry. It's bird of a feather who are curious about and passionate about either chaos or resilience or specific load testing practices. And these are the engineers that start talking about uh, going much deeper uh, in their journey and creating even better tech. Okay. So when I started, for those of you who are thinking, where do I start? I created the program along the lines of well-architected framework, which basically means that we had very systematic uh, set of programs that goes and improve availability, scalability, and resiliency. The only difference here is that we also had such a thing as high-profile events. High-profile events, or we call them also high-velocity events, is when we launch such popular content as Jack Ryan. Oh, marvelous, Miss Maisel. That is soon to come. Um, life sports. Um, and then on the corresponding team structure, I have a team of engineers and a team of technical program managers that run um, these programs. The engineers build tools for the programs. An interesting insight here at Amazon, we have the culture of strong ownership. Okay. Compared maybe to some other companies where you hear that there are site reliability engineers and people whose job it is to focus on performance, we don't do that. We basically make it all of our team's job to care about availability and resiliency. However, inevitably, within each team, there is a person that is super passionate that steps in and says, I'm going to be scaling a point of contact, and we work typically with this single point of contact within the teams to structure these programs and accomplish our goals. All right, um, so what is the insight? What did we learn over the years? One thing, one really big thing that we learned over the years that live streaming is super hard and the bar for live streaming is so much higher. There is a phrase that I hear very often, especially this year, that nines do not matter if the customers are not happy. And frankly, this is so true. We had super rough summer, um, especially August, um, during tennis matches where customers were not happy. And we've learned that expectation for streaming is for live streaming especially, it's to be 100% uptime. Not only that, in addition to this 100% uptime, you need to be better than broadcast, you need to make sure that all of these new features like high definition um, and high frame rate and also ultra HD, they're available and user experience need to be intuitive. Okay, that was good lessons for us. So where did we start? And what was the mental model when we were thinking about live streaming? Our mental model and the frame of mind that we step into is that readiness to handle failure or unknown is feature zero in the product. And I specifically focus on known. Why is that? Well, let me show you a couple of examples. All right. That is super interesting. That is Bundesliga. This is a football match that happens in Germany. And what is interesting here is that the blue line shows a regular ramp up of customers coming in, joining, watching the game. Great. There's workload coming in typically much higher than your typical profile. That's wonderful. However, the match got tied in the middle. So 
it was two high-profile teams going at it, and it was not clear who's going to win. So what happened? We had this subscription spike. The black line is a subscription spike that is happening right in the middle of the match. Super counterintuitive, because you would think, and that's how we plan, that you have a high-profile match and two rivals planning. You will have customers joining somewhere early, right? From those of you who are thinking about workloads, workloads and how to prepare for them, what it told us that it's also, we also need to think through a rival rate and the spike happening at any given point. Okay? This is the second one that was super cool and I wanted to share with you. So this is a popular TV show that is uh, on our service. And what was happening was that customers, you see this double hump, which is not normal. Customers were watching the first episode when it got released. And what we noticed that customers were re-watching right after that, the same episode second time. Absolutely non-intuitive. For those of you who are thinking, how do I test this? This means that you need to test your workload double in time, double in duration. That was a bit of a surprise. All right, this is my favorite, and I'm going to bring it back. I talked about it uh, a year ago, that last minute is literally last minute. This is also what you see in digital media. This is subscriptions literally a minute before a popular show starts. And I called it Knife Tower. Um, so here you go. So let's talk about how to think about this unexpected and what can help us deal with this unexpected. There is this John Law um, that I really like when I think about framing hypotheses and working with my teams. You know, how do, how do we start, right? Adrian talked a lot about building hypotheses and your question's probably, so where do I start? What are the hypotheses are, right? John Law, uh, Law helps with that and it basically says that um, your average number of customers in the system is the product of the arrival rate and then mean time in the system. Okay, so let's break it up. Ultimately, you can have a hypothesis that says, I want to know what is the total load will be that comes to my services, which basically says what is total number of customers in the system. And in order for me to do though, I need to project and forecast the arrival rate and then time in the system. And you can basically have a hypothesis, an experiment that prepares you for the overall load, okay? Another thing that you can do, you can say, hmm, arrival rail is super cool and I need to plan for that. This sharp spikes in the middle of the load, this is interesting. I need to have an experiment that allows me to do that. Okay. I wanted to share this customer examples on purpose because all of you have seasonality within your services, you have seasonality within your business. And what's really cool to start with is understand your customer behavior, how they interact with your systems, and start there. Because this will allow you to construct your hypothesis and your goals. What do you want to test? Where do you want to start with? When you do that, the conversations about technology and the choices that you have become much, much easier then you know which kind of tool set you need to have. And we'll take a look at uh, recommendations, what goes into this tooling as we go along. So let me share with where do we start? Where, where did my team start? We started with asking questions, okay? 
The first thing that we needed to do, we needed to understand, can our services sustain projected load? Okay, great. And what you see here is our resilience framework, where the first step in this resilience framework is basically um, really we're starting with understanding our hardware profile, how many instances we might need, our, uh, our outer scaling rules, all of that, right? Um, and it's mostly positive testing, and it happens in production. So all of that load testing experiments that we do, they are happening in production environment and prime video. Okay? So what is the second thing you do? The second question that we ask, we basically ask, okay, now that we have that full load, right, for full uh, projected number of customers, how does this load change performance? And what should we see between our dependencies and services in terms of latency, errors, and throughput? I'm going to phrase it slightly differently. A question that you probably hear very often is about SLAs. How do we construct SLAs between our services and dependency? So doing experiments like that helps you to identify what is acceptable. Okay? The third step that we do is we ask ourselves, when is the breaking point? And we run the stress test experiments when we go a little bit higher than our forecast and in some instances much higher. We typically recommend our teams to do it in their betas and their test environments first, but we also run this experiment here in production. As a matter of fact, just last week, as we were preparing for the launch, one of the teams said, hey, Olga, we've done all of the testing that we need to do for the projected load, but we really want to know the signals of our systems in distress. Why don't we double? And we basically construct this stress test so we can understand how the systems will respond. We run that, it was a super productive test, really happy with that. And the last in the resilience framework, but not least, is chaos experiments. And this is when we do either dependency failing, super popular one, uh, chaos experiment, or slow network, or CPU or memory maxed out. And I'll share with you specifically the most popular one that was in Amazon Video Engineers. So what answers did we get? Here's all of the four questions and our resilience framework. What did we learn? Um, in digital media, when you read about big events, there is always a conversation about concurrent streams. It's almost like a currency by which you measure how popular the event was. And ultimately what we've learned is that Part of the playback systems, they're absolutely scaling up with this um, concurrent streams metric. Remember when Adrian was saying, when you construct your experiment, tie them to your business metrics. So for us, that concurrent stream metric was super important to understand the house of playback and experiments in the playback. But we've also learned something different. We've learned that the arrival rate matters to the first part of the journey where customers are subscribing, they're discovering content, they're interacting with the systems before they hit the play button. And our insight was that we need to construct different experiments that line up with different business metrics. And the biggest takeaway that I have for you is think through not once, think through multiple business metrics that you want to have. 
And those two that I shared with you, especially framed in the uh, Little's Law, is probably a good example of how to think about construction of these experiments. Okay, so let me share um, with you which tools we actually use. We, we are known for game days. Like I said, we run game days in production. And when we run these game days, this is a hypothesis experiment. And we ultimately have a few ways to construct a game day. One way is to ask ourselves a question. I'm preparing for this high-profile event. I know what my workload high peak will be. What do I need to do, and are my services ready for this workload, right? So that load testing. The second thing that we also do, as Adrian pointed out, you can take an outage, and you can take logs from the outage, and you can run logs also to replay what has happened, so that you have a bit more time to dig a little bit deeper into the systems and services and understand what went on. We do uh, intentionally cause failures to determine if our systems behave as expected. Little fun fact, when we were preparing to uh, English Premier League, um, we run a dress rehearsal, and during this dress rehearsal, we had a test stream uh, from a PL coming through. And our team sitting in the room, they did not know which some of the issues were we were discussing real one and which ones were test one, okay? We kind of commingled together on purpose just to test the responses from the teams. And one of the chaos experiments that we run, we did host reboots. And frankly, we rebooted 7,000 instances in one day. They were split across multiple teams, obviously, across multiple services, but it was really good to see that monitors and alarms were kicking in and our friends and AWS was also tapping us on the shoulder, hey, what's going on with Prime Video? And we're like, don't worry, we're just running case experiments. So it was kind of cool. Um, in, as part of this game day's testing and running of hypothesis, that alarms verification, making sure that your configuration is set, is super great byproduct that we always, always find helpful. What we do from process perspective, we have a process called operational readiness review, where we ask our teams that create other new services or new features, go through a systematic set of questions and make sure that all of that resilience framework that I've just discussed is being addressed and all of these tests been done and they show the results with us. Okay, so what do we do in terms of tooling? Um, We've created a control plane for running game days, and it's basically super flexible and allows us to uh, put together a large number of uh, load generators. Um, Hands-off executions, there is only one engineer pushing the button, and it runs across entire platform, across all of our services, and also dependencies in retail and digital partners. So super cool, super helpful. We also build additional products. So far, they are internal products that help us do forecasting. So the forecasting is done for each individual service. You kind of need to know what that load will be. Um, we run resilience experiments. Those chaos experiments, sometimes we deploy them at full load automatically, and sometimes we run them manually, depending on the complexity. Um, super important thing, as Adrian was pointing out, you have your hypothesis, you did the validation. But that next step is learn and improve. Learn and improve. How do you do that? We build fairly rich reporting and analysis set. 
And what we are able to do with this analysis set, we're able to say, okay, what happened during test? Let's compare it during, with the production. And let's also reason through what do we expect in terms of load during real event. How many customers will be on mobile devices? How many customers will be on living room devices? Who's going to be on the web? And we basically talk through how that load distribution will look like. Um, and having that reporting and analysis is super helpful. All right. Um, these are uh, chaos experiments, and I kind of organized them by the most popular ones. So as you can see, CPU hog, packet loss dependency, super popular ones within um, our engineering community. Let me give you a practical example. Um, a very common outage scenario, besides certificates, expiration, is dependency throttling, right? Dependency has failed. Um, so what we basically deal with when you have an availability drop because of the dependency, the solution is fairly obvious, right? Um, you need to think through either fast fail circuit break or something similar to that, so that's great. But then the question becomes, how do you test? don't really want to wait till the next outage to test that. So this is where chaos experiments and doing failure injection and throttling injection is actually help you. And these are real life graphs where after we put the code and fix in place, we run the chaos experiment. Here's the latency as basically kicking in during the attack and you can see the dependency was super healthy. There is no spillovers. The overall learning here is that when you think about your chaos tooling, it's really not one just platform, it's a tool set, right? And I think where you need to start with, you need to start with what is the best tooling available for you now so that you can construct your own experiments and you take into consideration then the needs that you have. How do I do forecasting for the services? How do I do failure injections when I need them? And then having experiments, repositories, so you're learning and you have the consistent learning cycle is super important as well. Um, all right, so let's do a bit of a summary. So when you start, you start with a very specific goal. What, what I'm doing, why I'm doing this. And that goal should be tied to a business metric or customer behavior because Having that conversation with your engineering team, with your leaders, you know, across the group and explain why we're doing this chaos experiments, what we're preparing ourselves for, is becoming so much easier. For us, we had to prepare for those high-profile events and the shows that you enjoy. And it was easy to start with because we know that the delivery needs to be super smooth. So find those goals that you want to start with. The first step is important. Why the first step important? Because you want to prove that it works. So think through which hypothesis you want to start with and what customer behavior possibly you want to uh, validate in your system to make sure that your services are ready. Once you've done this first step, the rest of the journey will be easier. You will be keeping a programmatic focuses because what I've learned over years, our engineers, they are fantastic at asking questions. How can I do this better? What can I improve over time? How I can scale our services better? And that programmatic focus allows you to build program with time. 
as we're taking a look at the entire framework, resiliency is really bigger than just chaos. There is just much more going on there. And it prepares you for the unknowns. Those unknowns and customer behavior that is super hard to predict. Um, the first point, keep learning about your customers. Having that feedback loop that allows you to say what has changed. Uh, so some systems are super seasonal, right? And sort of like having the discussion what has changed with the seasonality and bringing back into your chaos experiments are super important. And the last but not least, chaos is super fun. Just absolutely fun. Um, rebooting this 7,000 instances was a lot of fun because we've learned a lot about auto scaling roles, about our alarms and monitoring, and it's one of those things like, check, we've done that. Um, so start your journey and start your journey today. Thank you. I'm sure you still wanted to do this phrase. This is yours. Uh, all, right. all right, all right, the last part. This the last part, apparently the last slide. So, meet chaos where you are. I've started my story with me thinking and being in your shoes and being in your chair, the, like, the first couple of rows that's super interested here. Um, you have a lot of tools and there is a lot of material in this conference that will help you to start this journey, right? Um, Hopefully the presentation material here is giving you an insight on how to structure the program and how to get started. And my um, call to action to everybody, take chaos within your companies, within your groups, on your own journey. Yeah. Thank you. And that's the most important. I think a lot of people think chaos has to happen in production. Uh, it doesn't have to. Yeah. Uh, um, I'll tell you a story. When we, in my previous companies, we hired developers and the first thing we were doing with them for the first week is to build system and actually break them and learn how to do chaos-oriented development. Uh, as a second nature, when you build something, how to break it and how to automate that. And this culture then develops, and then yeah. they are so smart, they build stuff. Right? They develop the right tools then to go in production. Uh, so don't always believe what you see on Twitter. Chaos engineering starts on your laptop, then might move to test yeah. beta, and then eventually they'll, your team will bring it to production. Right? So on that note, thank you very much thank for your you. time. I hope you had a good reInvent. Uh, enjoy the party tonight if you don't have any talk uh, uh, after that. And feel free to ask us questions. We're going to be here. Uh, feel free to ask us on Twitter as well. These are our handles. Um, well, thank you very much. Thanks.